Hello, everyone. This is your host, Nico Perino, here. I usually make this ask at the end of every show, but today I'm going to put it right at the beginning. If you enjoy this podcast, I want to ask you to please consider giving us a review on iTunes and subscribing to the podcast if you haven't already. I'm pretty new to this whole podcasting thing, but one thing that I have learned since we started, so to speak, is that positive reviews on iTunes are super important for helping to attract new listeners to a show. So if you like what we're doing here and want to help us get more listeners, please drop us an iTunes review. While Thanksgiving was last week, we will forever remain thankful to those of you who take two minutes out of your day to head on over to iTunes and give us a review. Now, on to the show. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back. Today is exciting. We are starting a new series here on So To Speak, where we will profile the careers of some of the First Amendment community's most eminent First Amendment attorneys and activists. The profiles won't come sequentially. Rather, every now and then, we'll drop a profile into our schedule, and the style of these shows will be a bit different. I'm going to try to get out of the way for the most part and let our guests tell the story of their careers in their own words. My hosting hand, if I can help it, will try to remain ever so light. Our inaugural guest for this series is attorney Martin Garbus. Time Magazine has called Mr. Garbus legendary. The Guardian has declared him one of the world's finest trial lawyers. And he's been called a ferocious litigator and a pit bull. His client list, which spans a half-century career, is a who's who of the world's preeminent writers, actors, corporations, civil rights activists, and Nobel Prize winners. The list includes Nelson Mandela, Lenny Bruce, Vaclav Havel, Andrei Sakharov, Marilyn Monroe, Sean Connery, Spike Lee, Robert Redford, Daniel Ellsberg, and Nancy Reagan. A full list of his famous clients can be found at his website, martin-garbus.com. Mr. Garbus has written a number of books, including a memoir that is available on Amazon titled Tough Talk, How I Fought for Writers, Comics, Bigots, and the American Way. He's received the Lifetime Achievement Award from New York University Law School and Penn International's First Amendment Award. Now, I should note that Mr. Garbus can be a bit of a controversial figure in the First Amendment community for his representation of plaintiffs in libel cases, and we'll get into that a bit during the show. I first heard about Mr. Garbus in the context of his work with the late comedian Lenny Bruce, since Mr. Garbus is one of the few surviving Bruce attorneys. Later, I stumbled upon a documentary created by his daughter and award-winning documentary filmmaker Liz Garbus called Shouting Fire, Stories from the Edge of Free Speech. And that documentary is, in part, about the elder Garbus's career. Now, in October, I tracked down Mr. Garbus, who lives and works in New York City, and we met at his apartment one Sunday afternoon. What follows is his story in his own words. Now onto the show. Martin Garbus, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. What got you interested in First Amendment issues? Uh, It's hard for me to say, except that I was court-martialed in the Army um, before I became a lawyer. 
for speeches that I had given on an army base. This was right after the Korean War. I had been sent to a base where basically I was being taught how to give the news to soldiers in Korea. Uh, at that point in time, if you pushed up your draft number, they allowed you, they said they'd allow you to do what you wanted to do. It was nonsense, but no one knew that. So they sent me to a base, and I had to give three speeches when I was allegedly learning how to speak and allegedly learning how to speak to the troops. Uh, I did not come from a particularly left background, uh, but I was a New Yorker. So the first uh, speech I gave had to do with the Fifth Amendment. It had just been after the McCarthy period. Erwin Griswold, I think of Harvard, had written a book about the defense of the Fifth Amendment. So uh, I, I said all that stuff. To expose communists. Then the guy who was running the class afterwards came up to me, and he said, you know, that's not the Army position, and you shouldn't talk about things like that. I listened to what he said, but I didn't take it terribly seriously. The second speech I gave was about Sacco Vanzetti. Oh, Sacco Vanzetti. Oh, Sacco Vanzetti. Sacco, Sacco Vanzetti. I just want to sing your name. I had known about the case in college. I didn't think it was controversial any longer. Um, and at the end of that, he said, if you do that once more, you're going to get in trouble. The third speech I gave, again, which I just, it was my lack of knowledge and my being cloistered in New York schools and New York education, was that we should recognize Red China. Uh, it's hard to believe, in retrospect, I was that stupid or that I wasn't doing something to provoke authority. Uh, ultimately, what happened was, in this particular army base, it was right outside of New York, and you took a boat to the place. Everybody was supposed to sleep at the Army base. Nobody did, because it had such access to New York. Either you lived with a family, you took an apartment. So everybody left the base uh, every day, and then you came in on a boat, and you went back, and nobody questioned anything. Uh, ultimately, they said they would charge me for being AWOL, for having left the base against orders, and they were going to do that for X number of days. A trial proceeding, ultimately a court-martial court was uh, invoked. I went down, let's say, in a, a morning at 10 o'clock, uh, knowing I tried to get a lawyer from the ACLU and from other places. I couldn't on sure short notice. Uh, and it was on an army base. You didn't have that many lawyers who knew about that stuff. Um, and at the beginning of the trial, a guy named Master Sergeant Hatch comes in and sits down. Master Sergeant Hatch, who I had not met, had been a hero in the Korean War, and he was an older guy, and he had also been a hero in World War II. And he had been a lieutenant commander, but he was now a master sergeant, picking up enough time so that he could leave with a very substantial pension. He walked in. I don't know what provoked him to walk in. He walked in. He sat there for about 10 minutes. Nobody knew what he was doing there. He then said, Mr. Garbus, would you excuse us? I left the room. 
Then I saw the head of the army base come to the room. After 35 minutes, he called me back in. And he said, they're going to drop the court-martial proceedings, and we're going to work out a deal if it's acceptable to you. They'll strip you of your security clearance, and you will go sit in a desk where you're not doing any army work for the rest of your uh, enlistment period, not enlist, whatever it was, uh, which was really about 18, 20 months. And then afterwards, I said to him, what happened in there? Uh, that same day, I said, what happened in there? He said that, I know why they're going after you. He said, if we're up to me, if I were in Korea, I told him, I'd rather have someone next to me who thinks for himself. And I'd be proud to have PFC Garbus uh, with me in Korea. And I know what's happening here. And if you don't drop the proceeding, uh, I'm going to go to Washington. And he told that to the head of the base. And that's what happened with the proceeding. Uh, what then happened was, and I thought when that happened, they would send me to some horrific place. Instead, they sent me to Queens, Long Island, where I sat for about a year and three quarters in front of an empty desk and went started law school at night at NYU. I didn't have the money for law school after I got out of college, and I don't know that I ever would have had the money for law school. Uh, but here I was. I was being given room and board by the Army. I was given food by the Army. I was given all day off to study. So it was a godsend. And the, basically, the evening classes at NYU uh, were very demanding, but most of the people in my class had full-time jobs. So it was relatively easy for me to do well in law school. And did you want to go to law school because of your experience in the Army? I don't know what feelings I had before that. Uh, so you were at Hunter College, right? I was at Hunter before, College. Before you went in the Army? Yes. A little short break. After Hunter, I went to Columbia University. Uh, I was going to be the world's greatest economist. <laughs> I went for a master's degree in economics, but then went into the Army. So I heard of the Scottsboro case. I don't know if... No, uh, I'm not familiar okay, with it. Okay, basically in 1931... Two white women, young girls, got off a train in the South and said that nine black men, black boys, had raped them. The sheriff and his deputies rounded up nine black boys, black men, some were boys, that were on the train and arrested those men for uh, the crime of rape. He lines all up in the street line and uh, asked these women, said, which one had you? The case was tried in a horrendous atmosphere in Alabama. She went out of line, sent this one and this one and this one, and got five, picked out five. Then there's this other woman, Bates. Said, which one had you? She didn't say anything. One of these young shares said, don't ask, ain't no use asking her nothing. Said, Miss Pratton picked out five of them, the other four must have had her. All nine were convicted of the crime. Guilty is charged. They were convicted. Uh, the Supreme Court then reversed the case on the grounds that they didn't have an adequate lawyer, 
and that the jury wasn't impartial. They set it down for a second trial. Please rise, court is now in session. At the second trial, one of the girls uh, admitted that the whole story was fabricated and that nobody had touched either of them. Again, the jury convicted. A very courageous judge, Horton, then set aside the verdict and ordered a new trial. When they ordered a new trial, Alabama made sure he was not going to be the judge who sat on it. They got a new judge. Five of the boys were convicted. Four were set free. Ultimately, they all got out after a period of time. I think one was killed. But, of course, their lives were ruined. So the Scottsboro case dealt with many different issues. One of the issues it dealt with is the question of an impartial jury. And questions of impartial juries also relate to First Amendment issues. In other words, the balance is how much can the media say about a case, which they have a right to talk about, uh, when you have a jury being picked where a jury can be influenced by all that's being said. Who's the most unique client that you've worked with, the, the biggest character, so to speak? Well, when you say unique, it be people like people overseas, Andrei Sakharov, Nelson Mandela, Vaclav Havel. These were people out of my culture, basically. I appeared with Havel in the early 80s in a courtroom where he was sentenced because of some things he did. Uh, and then in 89, when I sensed that things were going to start to happen, I went there really before it actually broke out. I went and I spent two months uh, in Czechoslovakia, in Prague. Václav Havel is a playwright who has emerged as a central figure in the reform movement. Václav Havel, the playwright who became president after leading a velvet revolution against communist rule. And ultimately was asked by Havel to help write the Czech constitution and specifically those sections that dealt with speech and First Amendment and so-and-so. By and large, anything I did was rejected. It was too far a jump from what had existed in Czechoslovakia before to have the, the legislature there embrace that. Havel embraced it, the writing community based it, Klima, Kundera, but uh, not the legislature. You've had a lot of uh, cases involving global issues, and the one you just spoke right. of, of course, in Czechoslovakia. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Daniel Ellsberg? Our guest today is Daniel Ellsberg. His leaking of the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times set in motion a uh, When I met Daniel Ellsberg, it was at a peace march in Washington. He was then going with a woman who was a very dear friend of mine, Patricia Marks. And she trusted my judgment, and I liked her very much. So she wanted me to meet the man that she might marry. So I went down to Washington. Uh, I met Dan. He was then a hawk. Uh, and after I left them, I said to Pat, you should not. I said, this guy's a hawk. Uh, he was in the military. And uh, I found him... Uh, totally unattractive and found his politics unattractive. 
Ultimately, of course, he switched. This weekend, portions of a highly classified Pentagon document came to light for all the world to see and brought cries of outrage from Washington. And when the, after he take the Pentagon Papers, before it came public, he had trouble releasing them. Nobody would touch it because they were confidential documents. And here it is in black and white. There's no way of denying it. Uh, Senator Fulbright, one of the great anti-war senators, we had a meeting. Uh, asking him to publish it. He could go on the Senate floor. He was privileged, and he could read it in. He refused to do it. He thought it was un-American. Dan primarily, but me somewhat, then ran around to other media. Nobody would touch it. When I read it, I said, Dan, you're crazy. I said, this is not going to affect anything. I said that uh, it's written in, you know, language of a bureaucrat. It was really impossible to get through. It was thousands and thousands of pages yes, as well. Yes, and it was written in, uh, as I said, diplomatic speak. And you really had to look at it long and hard to figure out what was there. And Dan knew the downside of that was potentially jail for life. Because it was serious stuff. We knew this is all before Snowden, all before, you know, people were releasing so much information. So my advice to him was don't do it. That, that uh, it, I don't think it will serve a purpose, and I think you will certainly go to jail for a long time. Uh, nonetheless, I helped him. And a stack of the Pentagon papers were in my country house uh, in case he got caught. Uh, and he asked me to, you know, do whatever had to be done after he got caught. Uh, I wasn't sure what that was. Then uh, he brought it to the Times, to Neil Sheehan, and he didn't hear from the Times for three months. He often asked Sheehan and other friends of the Times what was happening. They basically stonewalled him. One Saturday, I was walking with Dan, and that night in the newspaper we saw it on the front page of the times times had a bulldog edition which came out the night before the day's edition and we were both astonished uh we were also both astonished that neil sheehan had turned it into english and that it commanded the attention it did command a name has now come out as the possible source of the Times Pentagon documents. It is that of Daniel Ellsberg, the top policy analyst for the Defense and State Department. I am prepared to answer to all the consequences of these decisions. Uh, I was happy to represent him, except that uh, we were advised that I would be an unindicted co-conspirator and therefore that I could not represent him, which I didn't do. Somebody else did. Uh, and over the years, uh, I've been friendly with Dan. I uh, did not go to the trial. Um, I don't think that it led to the end of the war, but it certainly helped lead to the impeachment of, of Nixon. Watergate, in large part, comes out of the break-in to Dan's psychi- office of Dan's psychologist. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow as they tried to put together evidence that he had done wrong things or bad things or was a horrific womanizer, and they wanted to use that to attack him uh, as time went on. As you may remember, 
The prosecution was long. It was in Los Angeles. It looked like he had to be convicted because there's no defense to releasing classified material. He had a wonderful, wonderful lawyer, Leonard Boudin, and then a very, very close friend of mine who was also a wonderful lawyer, Leonard Weinglass. There were two defendants, Ellsberg and Russo. Russo had helped Dan. Weinglass represented Russo. Boudin represented Ellsberg. Uh, they were wonderful, but you couldn't win the case, basically, unless the jury would say, and that's jury nullification, unless the jury would say, uh, I'm not going to follow the law, which would have been very hard. Uh, what happened then is Nixon, wanting to make sure there was a conviction, uh, sent someone to have a meeting with the judge, Matthew Byrne, letting Matthew Byrne know in their languages that if there was a conviction, Matthew Byrne would become the head of the FBI, a position that most anybody wanted. And it was very different than just being another trial judge. The defense learned about it. They confronted Byrne with it. He admitted it. There was a mistrial. And that was the end of it. I want to get in now to some prominent issues uh, in the First Amendment world. You represented Penguin Books, I believe. Yes. And the Salman Rushdie affair. Yes. Few incidents in the last two decades have emphasized the importance and the perils of free speech as starkly as what has come to be known as the Rushdie affair. Uh, most recently, we had the Charlie Hebdo incident, uh, sort of the same sort of thing where there's an attempt at an assassin's veto almost. Yes. Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of Iran, issued a death order against Rushdie and called on Muslims throughout the world to track him down. Um, what was your experience like with Penguin Books early? And what, what are your thoughts about Charlie Abdo? I saw you had written something, a letter to the editor in the Times um, following that incident. Uh, I don't remember the letter to the editor. <laughs> I assume I'll be consistent. My primary involvement was with Penguin Books. And one of the things we did, one of the things I did, naively, is I went to a town about two or three hours from London, I met with various people who allegedly had a connection to the people who levied the fatwa, uh, trying to persuade them to go back to that country to lift the fatwa. Uh, you know, we were desperate for solutions. That was a desperate solution. Clearly had no effect. Then when they wanted the book published in America. Penguin, at that point in time, had three or four of its stores bombed. Uh, fires, and everybody knew that publishing the book carried risks. Bomb threats were phoned in to Viking Penguin, the publisher of Rushdie's novel. Then Cody's bookstore in Berkeley was mysteriously firebombed. The Penguin offices themselves had extraordinary security. If a car drove up to the Penguin area, they would hold it outside, they'd go to the bottom, they'd go to the top. Not unlike what goes on today, except that it was a rare incident. It wasn't, it was not a common incident. Um, so everybody understood that the continued publication of the book would cause enormous problems. People were afraid to handle it in America. 
And uh, what ultimately happened with Peter Mayer, president of Viking, and myself, uh, the book was published in paperback uh, by a, a collective of publishers. And there was no one publisher's name on the book. Uh, so that the hope was none of the publishers would be singled out. Rushdie was furious at that. He was furious at that because he saw it as giving in. I think the only way of living in a free society is to feel that you have the right to say stuff. The publisher's fear was, as in London, that the bombs would be thrown into bookstores or publishing houses. Uh, at that time, uh, I remember, I forget who was in 666 Fifth Avenue, uh, but someone was there who was involved with the publication of the book, and they uh, uh, had a, there were bomb threats, and the building was emptied out. Uh, Rushdie was angry that the American publishers had given in. The largest person in the line of his uh, anger was Peter Mayer, who had published it in England and was courageous in publishing it in England. He never pulled it back. And he was courageous in helping to put together the collective. Uh, Rushdie, more or less, never forgave him for that. You uh, describe yourself as not being, you know, despite your many um, cases protecting the First Amendment, you describe yourself as not being a First Amendment absolutist. Right. Uh, would you elaborate on that a little bit? I have represented, and I'm relatively unique, I've represented people who have sued the media, and that hurt me very much professionally and economically. By and large, there's an insurance industry that uh, pays for media that defends itself against libel claims. Nearly every First Amendment lawyer in the country uh, is part of that world, one way or the other. And if you take the case against the media or something like that, you are treated in many ways as a traitor. I mean, it's really passion. There's an article in The New Yorker in the talk of the town after I had represented uh, a woman a libel case against the Daily News. And there were three people who were quoted, Floyd Abrams, a First Amendment lawyer, James Goodale, a First Amendment lawyer, and Sachs, then a First Amendment lawyer, now a member of the bench. And Abrams said, for me to represent a First Amendment plaintiff is like a U.S. attorney who's been prosecuting cases to finally wind up representing drug defendants. Uh, Goodale sent something similar to that. Mm -hmm. uh, make a long story short, as a result of it, I lost all the publishing clients I had. Uh, Did you lose any friendships over it? Yeah. Yeah. You've spent uh, a portion of your career working with Nobel Prize winners. Yes. What have you learned from those experiences? Uh, Sakharov, for example, who was an eminent scientist 
in the Soviet Union. Physicist and Nobel Peace Prize winner Andrei Saharov created the hydrogen bomb. His scientific genius gave the USSR nuclear equality with the U.S., but Andrei Saharov was later to become a vigorous advocate of nuclear disarmament. As we spoke about America, he said that America will always lead the sciences. Because in America, you can think anything, and therefore you can say anything. Here, because you can't say things, you don't think about it, and thus you're very, very limited. I remember we sat in his kitchen table in a relatively poor apartment in Moscow. He had been sent out of uh, Moscow to some hinterland for many years. He had just come back. And I saw his peaceful courage, if you will. What he then wanted to do was the Soviet Union was then treating its prisoners brutally. And uh, the uh, Soviet dissidents wanted to publicize their condition and let the world know where they were being kept so that people outside, Amnesty International, etc., otherwise could even put pressure on the localities or the prisons where these people were being kept. Uh, and it was against the law to do that, against the Russian law, and you could have been penalized. Uh, Jimmy Carter was about to come into office, and maybe had just come into office. I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute. That I, will faithfully uh, I suggested that Carter, if he could get this information, would probably use it and try and do something. He wouldn't blast it across the newspapers, but he would try and do something constructive about it. So we composed, with, with, with his wife's help, who was an extraordinary person, uh, a letter to Jimmy Carter. And in the letter to Jimmy Carter, we had a list of prisoners and where they, would, where they could be found. I attempted to deliver that to Carter. We got stopped leaving Moscow. Uh, I had assumed that paper might have been difficult, so with great courage, I put it on my wife's body. Uh, and uh, we were then detained for X number of hours. Uh, didn't catch our plane, but caught a later plane. As they looked for documents that they thought we might have had at that time. Uh, they didn't find it. Uh, I then delivered that to his then Secretary of State in Washington, Warren Christopher, in the first month in January when Carter was just getting in. Carter then used that letter as a, a position paper to announce his new human rights policy. But I want to speak to you today about the strands that connect our actions overseas with our essential character as a nation. And an aggressive American human rights policy, for good or bad, uh, came into the American lexicon and has stayed there till this day. So it was a seminal letter uh, written by Sakharov. Yeah, that you put your lives at stake almost to get over here. Yes, yes. You know, had you been caught. Yes. Another Nobel winner um, recently has had a lot of controversy surrounding his, his writings, uh, James Watson. 
um, who you're also familiar with, yes. recently was prevented from speaking at NYU because he's thinks he's written about race and or said yes. about race and intelligence. Yes. Um, have you had? What do you think about that controversy surrounding his works? Um, and I also represented James Watson. Uh, there was a woman, and I forget her name now, who claimed that she, along with Watson and Crick, had uh, done a good deal of the work, that Watson and Crick had taken credit for. Yeah, and they won the Nobel Prize. What, yes. What was it? Based for? on the book. Yeah. Double Helix, yeah. I think, was the name of the book. Were they map- was it they mapped the human genome? Yes. Or, yeah. And she wanted to sue them for libel and stop the book. Uh, ultimately, I represented Watson that uh, the book was not stopped. And then Watson, after that, said a lot of very foolish things. Uh, and I represented him so that he could speak. He was not about to, he realized how foolish the things were that he said. He was not about to repeat it, I don't think, uh, but he was being blackballed. He was fired from the boards of companies for making comments about intelligence being tied to race. And refused permission to speak at various scientific conventions where that normally would not have come up. Uh, And I forget the race, he made very, I forget what his remarks were. They were racist and stupid. You've had a lot of First Amendment cases throughout your half-century career. What are the handful of most memorable cases that you've had? Well, the Lenny Bruce case became, in its own way, a a signpost. Mm -hmm. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is a very shocking comedian, the most shocking comedian of our time, a young man who is skyrocketing to fame, Lenny Bruce. I had a number of obscenity cases in the 1960s. Uh, I represented, well, he was dead, Pierre-Louis, a French poet, uh, concerning the banning of his book in the United States Supreme Court. I participated in different ways with Barney Rossett, then a great, great publisher who gave his life in large part to fighting censorship. He was involved with Henry Miller, uh, Tropic of Cancer, a film called I Am Curious Yellow. Um, but Lenny Bruce, for some reason, has become a signature case of the 60s. The bust. What I got arrested for in San Francisco. Uh, it, wa- it didn't appear to be that at the time. Uh, but what happened is he was arrested again and again and again. He was arrested in San Francisco, convicted. He was arrested in Chicago, convicted. And then we represented him in New York. New York was kind of his last gasp. It was his last gasp because as a result of all the arrests, he could no longer appear in nightclubs or, or, or you know, larger venues because nobody would touch him. Because when he was arrested, they also arrested often the owner of the nightclub or the people who put the show up. So when I met him, he was kind of at the end of the rope. You have a choice of a judge or a jury. First place, you're a schmuck about that if you ever take the judge. Because the thing uh, he uh, story, was into drugs. He, uh, he was close to non-functional. 
his prosecution came about because of the hostility of the Catholic Church. It had less to do with obscenity than with other issues, political and otherwise. And there was something in New York then called Operation Yorkville, which was uh, Yorkville's uh, east side, 86th Street in Manhattan, a conservative area. And part of Operation Yorkville was prosecuting people for morality, obscenity, etc. And Frank Hogan, then the district attorney of New York, was very tied in with them. They were a be- very powerful political force in New York, closely allied, as I said, with the Catholic Church. The DA, the guy said, blah, 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 look at him, he's smug, he's not going to repent. Then they dug something. They sort of like saying, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't have to go through Lenny's routines here. Uh, often when I'm interviewed about Lenny, I try and say some of the things, but I'm not very funny. But, 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 but some of the things where well, you don't have to be funny, which, which horrified the judges here, he has a bit with Eleanor Roosevelt, where he walks into a room where Eleanor Roosevelt is there. Lenny walks into the room. He goes up to Eleanor Roosevelt, and he says, Hi, Ellie. And she says to him, Hi, Lenny. And he looks at her, and you remember she had these low, very low cleavage dresses. And he said, oh, what beautiful skin you have. And she's kind of astonished. And she said, gee, thank you. And then he looks closer. And he says, what beautiful tits you have. And she starts to cry because no one thought of, or probably no one spoke of, Eleanor Roosevelt as a sex symbol. So uh, it's not the language but giving a human aspect to a public figure. Yeah, a revered public figure. Yes. Was So were you representing Lenny, was it with Ephraim London? Ephraim London, who mm-hmm. I was then practicing with, mm-hmm. was one of the leading American experts on yeah. constitutional law and First Amendment. He had done a number of cases. I met Barney Rossett through him. He and I together did a case in the United States Supreme Court called Jack Bellis, Ohio uh, v. Ohio, which dealt with a film involving Jean Moreau. Uh, and in that film, the film opens with her lying on her back. She's nude, uh, but uh, from the waist up. What year is this? Uh, I would say 64. She, she's nude from the waist up. A man is kissing her. And then the man's head goes outside of the screen and in a few minutes, you see the woman getting very, very, very excited, uh, uh, ultimately orgasmic. Uh, so that film was banned. Uh, it was banned in Ohio, and that's where the prosecution was. So I, that was the first case Ephraim and I worked on together. With, with Lenny, there's a lot of discussion about how mercurial he was with his attorneys, firing them often. What was your experience with Lenny the person? When I met him, uh, he was just beside himself. Uh, He ultimately fired Ephraim, and since I was with Ephraim, I got fired also. Uh, I maintained a relationship with him. His primary hostility was to Ephraim because Ephraim uh, was the one who was constantly trying to explain to him what was going on in the courtroom. Uh, Lenny felt that we were stopping him from testifying. His feeling was that if he got on the stand, 
the jury, the judges, the three judges, it was a judge case, not a jury case, would understand him. Our view was that him getting, there was no way these judges were going to understand him, no way at all. What happened at the trial is that there's an inspector, Rue, R-U-H-E, who had been sent by the district attorney's office to watch Lenny's performance so that there could be a prosecution. Rue ultimately got on the stand, and he testified as to Lenny's performance. He got it all wrong. He, the, the words that, that he said, Lenny said, were, as he said it, unintelligible. Uh, it was not a performer. It was an inspector. And what Rue also did is Lenny had a piece with the microphone. We had the microphone in his hand, a loose microphone. And he was kind of mimicking the Catholic Church uh, blessings. And what Rue said was that that was a masturbatory gesture. And he described the gesture on the stand as a masturbatory gesture rather than as a benediction or blessings. Who uh, don't know what I'm doing, think I'm trying to hit them. Uh, so that the judges could convict Lenny, not only on the words, but also on the grounds that his actions, his conduct. So they said it was more than words, it was, it was also exactly what he did. As you can imagine, Bruce overwrought anyway, unable to perform, running out of money, had to sit through a trial where something other than his act was being prosecuted. And that drove him crazy. A peace officer who is trained for, to recognize clear and present dangers, not make believe, does the act. The grand jury watches him work and they go, that stinks. And that's why he insisted and we said, you can't do that. They'll cross-examine you. They'll kill you. And we said, you'll win on appeal, and you can't win here. And he said, you guys are wrong. I can reach the judges emotionally. They will understand who I am. I'll have a bond with them. Because Lenny was used to having bonds with diverse audiences. He was used to winning people over. We said correctly that you're not going to reach these judges and leave it for the appeal. Ultimately, he won on appeal after he'd already died. That was the Bruce thing. And what happened in the audience with Bruce was Philip Roth, Allen Ginsberg, a lot of the New York people. And I think what Philip has said over the years is the extent to which Lenny's language and the kinds of things he did permitted Philip to go to Portnoy, permitted Philip and other writers to write about things. So Lenny became kind of a signpost in those times. You know the meaning of obscenity, don't you? Perhaps you don't. See, if I do a disgusting show, or use any disgusting words, or I'm just going to be talking about pork, uh, that's my right, you see, as an American citizen, to discuss pork on stage. Although, discuss- Final question here that I ask most of our guests. Do you have a hero in the free speech movement or someone that exemplifies its values? Um, would, would you say Barney Rossett is one of those for you? Yes, I'm sorry, yes. Barney Rossett was extraordinarily courageous. Uh, he had X dollars. He, by the time he was through, he had zero dollars. Uh, he was an eccentric. 
Uh, a book of his has just come out, uh, which I recommend. It's an auto, it's, it's not well, a memoir it's, or something. It's base hero diaries over the course of many years that had some wonderful stuff in it, but was totally unpublishable. And his present widow, a man named John Oakes, the head of the publishing company, and several other people, worked for years to make it into a coherent autobiography. And he, and that book really traces the cultural wars. It was he who published Lawrence Miller, Rep, I Am Curious Yellow, Story of Ove. Uh, I don't remember what else. Uh, uh, but uh, he was extraordinary. Yeah, he was part of the Beat Generation, right? He published, well, published a lot of them. He published a lot of them. Uh, he was part of it. I mean, uh, he was age-wise older. And when you think of the Beat Generation, you basically think of the writers and creators. Barney wasn't that. But also, Barney helped discover, along with someone else called Richard Seaver, uh, helped to discover Samuel Beckett. And I got to know Beckett through him. Beckett wrote a play called Catastrophe, which he dedicated to Václav Havel. And the first time I went to Czechoslovakia, it was at Beckett's request to deliver this play to Havel, because Havel had never seen it and didn't know about it. The entire play, you could fit on one large, one large page, uh, and it was about a dictator. And as I said, Rossett wrote it out of homage to, to Havel. So Rossett was all involved in all kinds of things in the United States. And you said, I think, during one of your interviews that I read that he... He paid the bills for a lot of you First Amendment he attorneys. He paid. He supported the First Amendment bar in New York, maybe throughout the country. He was totally committed. I think, I may be wrong now, when he was in college or high school, he published a newspaper called The Anti-Everything. And I think uh, he also published a piece for college about Henry Miller before anybody knew who Henry Miller was. Um Barney was an extraordinary person. Ultimately, the women in his office uh, struck his office on the grounds that he was an anti-feminist, anti-woman, uh, which he was in, <laughs> in his own peculiar way. Uh, and that was extraordinarily embarrassing and surprising for that to happen to him unless you knew him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, his book, I have it in front of me, is uh-huh. uh, My Life in Publishing and How yes. I Fought Censorship. Yes. And, I think and it's, it's a wonderful book, and it's accurate, not exaggerated, decent, a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. Well, Martin Garvis, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate having you. Fascinating stories, fascinating thank, career. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. That was attorney Martin Garvis. To learn more about his fascinating career, you can pick up his book, Tough Talk, How I Fought for Writers, Comics, Bigots, and the American Way. Or you can check out his daughter Liz Garbus's documentary, Shouting Fire, Stories from the Edge of Free Speech. Both can be found easily through a quick Google search. We've talked about comedian Lenny Bruce a lot on this podcast, and I have some exciting news for fans of his. For the first time ever, The transcripts from Lenny's obscenity trials are available for free, in searchable format, online within FIRE's brand new First Amendment library, which we launched a couple of weeks ago. You can find these transcripts and many more First Amendment goodies, including the papers of UCLA 
law professor Eugene Volok and a database of over 900 First Amendment court cases by visiting thefire.org and clicking First Amendment Library under the Resource tab. Speaking of fire, the end of the year is right around the corner, so I bet a number of you know what I'm going to ask. I'll just say that if you're thinking about making a tax-deductible donation before the end of the year, please keep fire in mind. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the organization's support, and you can donate directly at thefire.org. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so2speakpodcast. You can also email us feedback at so2speak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Until next time, enjoy the holidays, and thanks for listening.